the labor market tends to lag the right. business cycle. And so even as the economy begins to recover, um, unemployment can still remain high. Uh, in particular, if growth is relatively slow, it won't be fast enough to absorb workers coming into the labor force. So if we get the big jobs and we make the big money, when we look back now, will our jokes still be funny? Will we still remember everything we learned in school? Still be trying to break every single rule. Will little Brady Bobby be the stockbroker man? Can he ever find a job that won't interfere with the tan? I keep, keep thinking that it's not goodbye. Keep on thinking it's our time to fly. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Hannah Joffe-Walt in Seattle. And I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. Today is Friday, June 5th, and that was Federal Reserve Board Chairman Ben Bernanke testifying before the House Banking Committee. You heard that at the top. This week on the podcast, of course, we choose some indicator, bring you a variety of numbers to serve as that indicator. Today, 60. <laughs> That's actually a pretty decent Ira Glass impersonation. 60 minutes in our show. Act one, what happens when you take a team of economics reporters and ask them to talk for 60 minutes? The results are surprising. Okay, 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 all right. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're having a little too much fun with that. But yes, 60 (laughs) is our indicator, a Planet Money Hour on This American Life this weekend. And stories also on Morning Edition today and All Things Considered today, we are just taking over the airwaves. The This American Life show, it's called The Watchmen. Tune in. We'll be wrestling the regulators, the rating agencies, and just generally asking what the hell happened. We've been working on this for a long while now. And you know what happens when you're doing these stories is you find all these other great details and little things that try as you might, you cannot fit into the radio pieces. So today we're going to bring you two little bonuses that didn't make it into the show, but they are great and illustrative. So, Hannah, you go first. Okay, yeah, so I've been thinking about this one little story a lot. This, there's this one watchman that a lot of people do blame. William Black told me about him. He's an economics and law professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And this guy, his name is Daryl Doko. Daryl Doko, okay. Yeah, and this, this story starts um, way before this current crisis. Doko was a regulator. He was hired to work for the Federal Thrift Regulator in the late 80s, the agency that oversees thrifts. Thrifts are the same thing as savings and loans. They're a type of bank. Um, And as soon as Doko started his job in 1989, he was getting all these calls from people in California, state regulators. He was just inundated with calls about this one bank, Lincoln Savings and Loan. You say that like it's supposed to be ominous, is it? (laughs) It is. uh, For dorks like me who've been reading up on regulatory scandals, Lincoln Savings was Charles Keating's bank. Keating of the Keating Five, major political scandal in 1989. You remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. So, so those five senators, they were accused of intervening on behalf of this bank, Lincoln Savings, and stopping regulators from taking action against it. And Daryl Doko, he's right in the middle of this. He was a regulator. He was getting calls from people telling him this bank looks really dangerous. You should do something about it. But Doko and his bosses, they delay intervention. Keating was able to stay in control for two more years. He produced at $3.4 billion on only a $6 billion in asset shop, the most expensive failure of an insured institution in U.S. history. This transformed the savings and loan scandal, which had been sort of a back page business section, into a major political scandal. Savings and loan crisis, you remember that, more than 700 thrifts fail. There's a congressional hearing following that, and Doko's boss, he resigns. 
and Daryl Doko was demoted about eight levels to an obscure office in Seattle. For the next several years, the people are in charge who are cleaning up the industry, and Doko isn't making any, you know, he has no real decision-making authority at any senior level. So he gets banished to Seattle? Yeah, I mean, we got the fog, the coffee, guess it's a good place to lay low. Anyway, this years pass, Doko's doing his job in Seattle, and the boss is at the Office of Thrift Supervision, that thrift regulator office that oversees savings and loans, OTS. They start to notice that a lot of the really big and profitable operations that they're regulating are all in the West. And Doko's Seattle office, it has jurisdiction not just over Seattle, but over the entire West. All right, so let me make sure I got this. So we have a regulator that people have raised questions about. They said he was too lax. And this guy, he goes out to Seattle to regulate the West, and then all of a sudden a lot of big companies pick him and his reg- his office as the regulator. Yeah, and the buses in Washington, D.C., they noticed because that's where they get their money from for their budget. They get paid by the banks they regulate. So they noticed that his office out West was, was bringing in a, a lot of money for them. Right. And the OTS, they needed money at that point. They had just come out of a hard time during the savings and loan crisis. Banks were dropping dead that they regulated. So they needed some revenue. And the Western office was bringing in a lot of it. Washington Mutual was huge. They paid a lot in regulator fees. Um, And in 2007, the OTS managed to snag Countrywide, the giant mortgage lender, from another regulator. And William Black says Daryl Doko was key in sealing that deal. And countrywide is viewed as catching the whale, right? This ain't just a big fish. This is the biggest prize that they could really think of. So it's viewed as an enormous accomplishment Why? that he brings countrywide in because it's huge and it's going to bring in lots of revenue and uh, people won't lose their jobs at the Office of Thrift Supervision. And then last December, last there was... Last December? Wait, there's, there's, there's more? <laughs> yeah. So last December... It comes out that the Office of Inspector General is investigating one of the big banks in Doko's region, one of the ones that he regulates, IndyMac. IndyMac. So they're the mortgage lender in, uh, in Los Angeles. Yeah. And the investigators said that IndyMac messed with its financial statements. They backdated a capital infusion. So IndyMac made it look like money they got in May, they actually got in March. So IndyMac wanted it to look like they had more money in March than they actually did. I see. And capital reserves, we should point out, they're really important uh, for regulators to see, to judge how healthy a bank is, how how prepared they are for bad times ahead or something. Right. But in, the, in this case, the inspector general's office said that the regulators actually knew about IndyMac messing with the financial statements. They had allowed it to happen, that IndyMac called its regulator and said, we want to backdate $50 million, and the regulator said that they could. So, you know, two costly months later, IndyMac collapses, and the cost to the FDIC insurance fund is $9 billion. It's the most expensive failure for the insurance fund ever. So did the inspector general name names in the report, like who at the regulator was involved? Yes, the inspector general report says Daryl Doko was on that call. Doko has since been relieved of his duties as the Western Regional Director. recently announced he's retiring I've actually been trying to reach him. I've been calling places he worked for. I haven't heard back. Um, I don't know that he's gotten my messages. There was this email that surfaced from him in the LA Times. So I'm just going to read it to you, David. Okay. It says, 
I must admit that being singled out for a series of highly personal attacks over the failure of a prominent thrift has been painful, but I've been humbled by the tremendous support by many of the people who truly know me and the job I've done over the years. And, and you know, reading this, David, I mean, he is right. It's a little weird to be talking about this story as if the whole thing, the whole problem with what went wrong with regulation is about this one guy. It's not, you know. So we get into in the This American Life show, there were so many factors, so many watchmen missing the ball. I, I mean, actually, D- Doko's big boss, the head of the Office of Thrift Supervision in D.C., he just stepped down, and he's being accused of allowing other banks to backdate documents, too. And we, and we should point out that the Office of Thrift Supervision, they are not the only regulator being blamed for some part of this whole mess. Right. I, but it is, I mean, the story, I think I've been thinking about it a lot recently because it gets at this interesting question so, so people like William Black really believe that what went wrong with our regulatory structure was not that we had loopholes or that our rules are too lax. He thinks, no, it was just that there were bad seeds. There were people like Doko who were out to protect the industry and they didn't have the right intentions. And Black and I kept going back and forth about this because I feel like, you know, it can't just be the people. You're, you're always going to have a couple not so great regulators. You need to have the right rules, the right structure in place so that no matter who the administration chooses to lead these agencies, they'll have the right powers. Yeah, so who won that debate? I, me, of course. <laughs> All right, but, but his, his view, just, just to summarize uh, Professor Black, his view is he thinks the system is okay, the, regulator, the regulations are okay, it's just that we got the wrong people in the jobs, or maybe sometimes we don't have the best people in the jobs, something like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I honestly don't know if that idea makes me depressed because we humans have failed or, or happy that there might be a simple fix which that you just go hire the right people or something like that. Yeah. All right. So the, the, um, the This American Life show, as we mentioned, is called The Watchmen. And Alex Bloomberg and I have spent the last couple months looking into one place that a lot of people argue had the people there done their jobs, they could have stopped the entire crisis. <laughs> That's a lot of blame for one place, David. It, it, and I know it is. That's what makes it interesting to me. But a lot of people do say it. And we're talking here about the rating agencies, Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch. Those are the companies that they rate things. They give letter grades that indicate how safe a bond is. So they, they gave top AAA ratings to a lot of bonds backed by mortgages, some of them subprime mortgages. We know how that turned out. Um, and you know when investors see a AAA on a bond, they think, totally safe, I'm going to buy it. And they did. They bought trillions of dollars of these bonds. And that that was our housing bubble, the root of all this. So investors bought the bonds. Their money basically went to people as loans for houses. And that's that's the bubble. So the rating agencies, many people argue, were in this unique spot to put the brakes on things. So just to pick one conversation I've had about this among many, I put the question to Larry White, who's a professor at NYU. If the rating agencies had done a better job, how do you think things would be different now? We wouldn't be having this conversation. I try not to play the blame game. There's lots of blame to go around, but there's no question, had they done a better job, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. But can you blame the rating agencies? I mean, that's different, right? It's a difficult question because it's easy now after the fact to say they screwed up. But can we say that they should have known better? I mean, to be fair, a lot of people didn't see the extent of the bubble or how it would pop. Right. So that, that's the thing I, th- I think about. Is it clear they, they should have known there, there was something wrong? So today here, we have, I have this one story about someone who did question those AAA ratings early on. 
and you out there can decide what to make of it. The woman's name is Mabel Yu. She makes an appearance in the This American Life show this weekend, but we wanted to give you uh, her full story. I found Mabel Yu's name in this email that turned up in a congressional hearing about the rating agencies, and I called her up. And Mabel works for Vanguard, which manages $400 billion in bond investments. And it's her job to analyze these kinds of uh, mortgage-backed bonds and say basically, you know, yes, Vanguard should or shouldn't buy them or they're too risky or whatever. And the mortgage bonds with their AAA ratings, so they, they came to her, she looked at them, and she started to ask questions about them. I got names of the rating agencies, analysts, and I asked them lots of questions. In the beginning, the the, the questions would be a 15 minutes to half an hour, but then it turned into hours and many hours. Uh, I asked them, okay, AAA is supposed to be minimum risk. That means if the economy goes down, if the housing price goes down, if the interest rates go up, people can't refinance. Or, you know, if all of those things happen at the same time, you know, um, what would happen to our investment? And um, I could not get a straight answer. Did they say, look, you worry too much? We have a lot of smart people working on this. Many, 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 many times. I felt so dumb many, many, many times. They asked me, don't worry about it, have a life, you know. Instead of staying up so late and preparing all those hours of questions for them, just go and enjoy my life. Tell me that, you know, I worry too much. Almost every day. (laughs) Almost every day? Yes. 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 So Mabel, you actually, she recommends to Vanguard that Vanguard should not buy these mortgage-backed securities anymore, and she says Vanguard stops stops buying them. This sounds like an advertisement for Vanguard. <laughs> right. So, so this is one story, and frankly, you know, Mabel, you could have been wrong, and if she'd been wrong, then Vanguard's bond funds might have earned a little less money. But it does turn out she was right. Uh, she says... You know, I asked her, were you alone? Were there other analysts who felt the same way? And she said it was hard to tell. Um, People weren't really open about that. But she does remember this one phone call at the end when things were just starting to fall apart. And Moody's and Standard & Poor's were downgrading hundreds of the subprime-related bonds. And it was a conference call that Standard & Poor's did with her and some other analysts who were working for... uh, you know, investors, people who were buying these things and some people who had bought these bonds, uh, the bonds that were now looking riskier. And she says the phone call got pretty heated. So finally, um, the investors just come out saying that, no, we don't buy into your story anymore. And and, this, that, and there were very strong language exchange. And what, what did you do? I was so happy. So I, I, I mute my phone and I was jumping up and down. I was so happy. And also, finally, I got some friends. Oh, that's when you thought, finally, some people are saying what I've been saying all these all these years. I felt like I have some friends. I don't feel so lonely. <laughs> so, David, what do the rating agencies say about Mabel Yu? Uh, well, Moody's declined uh, requests for interviews. But Standard & Poor's, I have to say, was very helpful in putting together the story. Uh, they really wanted to get their side out there. And when we asked them questions, they answered them. And Alex and I interviewed Devin Sharma, who is the president of Standard & Poor's. And Sharma said, look, we, you know, we saw a housing bubble, but we thought we had required enough of a financial cushion in these bonds so that even in this worst-case scenario, they'd still be okay. And that's why they got AAA ratings. That's how this works. They take the mortgage-backed security. They simulate a kind of worst-case stress test financial storm. And if the bond still gets paid back, then they say, okay, we'll give it a AAA rating. In this case, it 
just we missed it and 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 our analytical team does did, does his best they did their best in looking at all the factors that they were uh, um, observing and they made a judgment call and that judgment call um, did not turn out to be what we expected in there are there were people like Mabel Yu who is an analyst at Vanguard who for years was very frustrated that she felt she could not get a straight answer out of you and Moody's about what the stress tests were, and she felt you were looking at one thing going wrong, but not everything going wrong at once. And she thought she thought the stress tests were not uh, were not tough enough. So there were people out there who were saying that. That's right, and and it's a it's a good point. In, in like any any market in any business any any in anything we do, um, there are contrarian points of view, and you have to listen to contrarian points of view. And as I said, in 2005, we had begun to make our own changes. Clearly, we didn't make those changes as severely as it has now turned out to be. So, David, the point you're making is is a valid point, and we ourselves recognized it and made those changes. Lesson learned: should have been should have been more than we did. Answer is obviously yes. Hana, so Sharma also says that Standard and Poor's is trying to be more transparent about what those worst-case stress scenarios are so that if something gets a AAA rating, he says investors should have a better idea of what that really means. We're going to have more from Devin Sharma and some of the critics of the rating agencies on the show, This American Life, this weekend. It's it's nice to hear people say that we're trying to fix things. Uh, Jacob Gantz, our producer, he wrote this blog post earlier this week. Um, it was really interesting. It was about these students at Harvard Business School. They've been going through school, watching the financial crisis unfold, and they've just been noticing that their profession maybe needed a little bit of a tune-up. So I got Jacob into the studio in New York to tell us about it. I asked him what the students were up to. They've written and signed a document that they've posted online um, at mbaoath.org where basically they're saying their profession needs a bit of a moral backbone. They need to insert some ethics into things, and they've all signed off on this thing saying that we need to be better and look out for the greater good and have society's general interests at heart rather than just the bottom line. Um, this week was a, was a big week at Harvard. It was graduation yesterday, um, and on Wednesday it was class day, and actually a bunch of them got together and read the oath, took it out loud, and uh, I thought that maybe uh, we could get a little taste of, of how that went. Hannah, um, do, you, do you think you'd mind uh, reading the oath for us? Yes, I have it here in front of me. Okay, so here it is. I'm going to take the oath. As a manager, my purpose is to serve the greater good by bringing people and resources together to create value that no single individual can create alone. Therefore, I will seek a course that enhances the value my enterprise can create for society over the long term. I recognize my decisions can have far-reaching consequences that affect the well-being of individuals inside and outside my enterprise today and in the future. As I reconcile the interests of different constituencies, I will face choices that are not easy for me and others. Seems reasonable, honorable, right? So earlier this week, I talked with one of the people behind the oath. His name is John Swan. He's a uh, Harvard MBA graduating this week. He's actually getting a public policy degree from the Kennedy School of Government at the same time. Very smart guy. Uh, And he explained to me the motivation for him. I guess my interest in in being involved with the MBA oath at HBS was uh, derived out of a um, you know, a, a belief that that uh, that business um, provides uh, a significant social value, um, and I wanted, you know, that was the reason why I came to HBS. Um, it wasn't necessarily to just be a value extractor, if you will, uh, 
um, which I think has been become the expectation of most most people that when they when they think of business leaders. Um, so the you know the underlying premise of of us going forward with this oath was was to build a movement where um, you know. I, I, People would be able to walk into, say, any business or into an employer's office, see an MBA on the wall, and have the same type of calmness uh, that they would when they see, say, an MD's diploma sitting on their wall, that they know that that person is skilled or certified to, to not only um, do their job right, but to make sure that they're not going to do anything that would you know, um, harm the individual or our society in general. I mean, I have to say, I can just imagine that they go out and get jobs and they don't quite remember this oath that they took when they were in school? Yeah, it's easy to be cynical about this. And I think it's reasonable. I mean, they are all coming out of school. They haven't been tested yet. But um, Swan says he really believes that gestures, and that's what this is at this point, it's just a gesture, that they really can be meaningful. And he talks about things like marriage vows or the Pledge of Allegiance, things that sort of just soak into your daily life and affect the way that you view things and the way that you act towards other people. I think the question is whether or not they can enforce it in any way. If it was just a vow, uh, I, I think you'd be, you know, I, I think skeptics would be right that it would just be a, a, some type of cheap gesture, I guess. Um, the, the other side is, is if you put, you know, say, real teeth in this, um, in, in the sense that you make it a, a legally binding document that, you know, um, has, you know, say, quarterly check-ins, um, then it's, then it's, um, uh, it's probably going to attract, you know, maybe a few purists, um, but but not too many people. So what what real effect would that have? And I think the the the, the path that we're going down um, is somewhere in the middle. So so it it sounds like he is sort of realistic about it. He knows that you know the business incentives that he's going to have in his life are going to sometimes be at odds with the sort of moral compass that he's trying to set up for himself. They're very realistic about the world that they're going out into. Um, Although, you know, there there is this idealism that's still leading the way. And that, that idealism is actually leading the way in other places as well. There's a there's a school in Arizona called the Thunderbird School of Global Management. <laughs> that's like the, the biker gang business school. Yeah, they're going to manage the globe, Thunderbirds. Um, but they, uh, they repeated a similar oath at their commencement ceremony earlier this year where they actually got up at uh, graduation and the president of, of the school read the oath aloud, and they all repeated it, and that was part of the actual ceremony. So there's a sense that something like this is actually moving forward in a way. It's just a question of whether it affects things out in the workforce once these uh, idealistic MBAs get out there. Great. Well, thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Anna. And you can read that post about the oath on our blog. We're at npr.org slash money. Thanks to all of you for listening. We get really excited hearing from you, seeing your pictures on the blog and reading your indicators. This program is produced by Jacob Gans, Caitlin Kenny, Laura Conway, <laughs> Alex Bloomberg, Adam Davidson, Hannah Joffe-Walt, Uri Berliner, and our boss, Ellen Weiss, who actually just promised us Planet Money will be running all of NPR by the end of the year. If it was just a vow, which it's not, um, nor, nor is it really in our plans to be, um, if it was just a vow, uh, I, I think you'd be, you know, I, I think skeptics would be right that it would just be a, a, some type of cheap gesture. And today we have one last thing. We have a sad goodbye to a special member of the Planet Money team, our editor, Jonathan Kern. Like those MBA students you just heard from who are graduating, Jonathan is embarking on a new exciting venture. Uh, We hope it will include reading some books in Middle English, drinking some cocktails, maybe writing some poetry. Earlier this year, Jonathan wrote a special villanelle. That's a type of poem for the Planet Money podcast. 
And we think that Villanelle has some great advice for graduating MBAs. So that is how we're going to leave you today. Goodbye, Jonathan. We will miss you. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Though banks are suffering a lack of liquidity and teeter on the edge of nationalization, do not succumb to economic stupidity. Though Congress is demanding more rapidity and tugs the strings behind the administration, keep at bay financial rigidity. The credit markets all crave liquidity and Wall Streeters contemplate defenestration. Do not succumb to economic stupidity. While Keynesians say the budget reeks of tepidity and scorn what's left of privatization, keep at bay financial rigidity. Zealots always demand philosophical solidity. Hasty action always trumps contemplation. Do not succumb to economic stupidity. Human nature involves some cupidity. Self-interest is the market's salvation. Keep at bay financial rigidity. Do not succumb to economic stupidity.